You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Uh, last two weeks I've been out, and uh, Valentine and Brad have preached the last two weeks and done a great job. And I always just want to take a moment to remind us that that is a great thing for others to preach. Um, at a former church I used to work at, there was a moment where I... Uh, I was kind of in the four-year area. A new couple walks in. They realized our primary guy wasn't preaching that Sunday, and they walked straight back out when they realized that. And that was my introduction into the weirdness of how people relate to preaching and preachers. And I just want to encourage you away from that, that one of the signs that you are growing in grace and maturity is that your affections for Jesus are easily stirred. Hear that. Here's a sign that you're growing in grace, that your affections for Jesus are easily stirred. So you don't have to have... The, you know, your favorite worship leader, you know, playing your favorite set of songs in just the right way for your affection to be stirred for Jesus. And you don't have to have Charles Spurgeon or your favorite pet preacher to be preaching to stir your affections for Jesus. And so I just want to remind us, this is a good thing for others to be preaching around here. It's good for you. You get to hear multiple voices. It's good for them. They get to grow in their gifts of preaching. The only way to grow in preaching is to preach. It's the only way to do it. And I hope that we can be a place that will gladly allow people to grow in their gifts and for us to be a place that encourages them in that. And lastly, it's a win for me because I want to, by God's grace, be your pastor for a long time. And to do that, I've got to preach at a sustainable pace. And so I just want to remind us that's a good thing. So wherever Valentine and Brad are, thanks to those guys. Okay, so Romans 11, um, it's going to take me just a second to get there. Let Let me preface it by saying this. Yesterday, as a church family, we turned five years old. Yeah. Yeah. Now see, that that clap felt so much more natural right there. And so we turned five years old, and you know, it's another story for another day um, to talk about just all the graces that have been a part of the last five years. Um, But it has been such a remarkable ride, and really it has just been the story of God's grace to a a people who need his grace, his faithfulness to a people that um, aren't overly faithful, that God has just been extraordinarily merciful to. It's the story of God just bringing miracle after miracle when we needed it. Um, to create this. Like every time I stand up and preach on a Sunday morning, here's the thought I think. It's a miracle that we're doing this right here. It's just a miracle the things that we've seen go on here. And so as I've just thought about our church family being five years old, this last week I also thought about the church in Ephesus. Now now hear me out on this. Um, To my knowledge, in the Bible, the church in Ephesus is the only church where you get to see its birth, its life, and its death where you see all of that happen. So in Acts chapter 19, you see the birth of the church in Ephesus. And then it was a wild beginning. Paul shows up, people are getting saved. The whole town is in an uproar, you know, uproar. Half the people hate Paul, half the people are getting saved. I mean, it's just this remarkable moment. Affection and this deep awe and admiration for Jesus are present. People are just, their, their hearts are exploding with life and vibrancy when they think about Jesus. It's causing th- these believers there to, um, to deal decisively you know, with their sin. They, they are declaring war. If you read Acts chapter 19, you're going to see a picture of what it means to declare war on sin. I mean, they are getting serious about Jesus, pursuing Jesus, dealing with their sin. These sort of things are happening. The mission of God is going out. Um, in, Acts, or in yeah, Acts 19, when, when you're reading about the church in Ephesus, it says that basically the entire area, this little band of believers called the church in Ephesus, the entire area had heard about the good news of Jesus. I mean, there, there was grace being poured out in this church in unprecedented proportions. 
unbelievable things happening. And then we also get to see the life of the church. The book of Ephesians, Paul wrote from prison back to the church in Ephesus. First and second Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy, his boy, as an elder in Ephesus. Timothy was one of the elders, the pastors there. First, second, and third John are written by John, who was one of the the elders in Ephesus. So you're getting to see a lot of the life of the church. And let's just say this, that 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 was a star-studded cast there. I mean, I think you've got a great staff here and and really good pastors, but you don't have Timothy. You you don't have John here, right? Paul didn't, you know, create this play. It wasn't wasn't any of that. They had this star-studded staff. They were blowing and going. Great things were happening. And then you get to Revelation chapter 2, and I want you to to hear what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. This church in Acts 19 was just exploding, all these wonderful things happening. You're getting to see so much of the life of the church, the vibrancy in this church. And, and then you get this, these words by Jesus in Revelation 2. Verse 2 and 3 start with what, what Jesus applauds in the church. He says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So this is a place with great theology. I mean, their theology is good enough where when a false teacher comes in, they can spot that guy from a mile away and deal with that guy. So so they've got great theology. It says that they're patiently enduring. They are enduring suffering well. They're not growing weary as they, they are patiently enduring suffering. So these are great and beautiful things in this church. But then Jesus warns them in verse four. This church that was exploding, all of these incredible things that happened in it. Verse four, he warns them of this. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. Another way of saying church. I will come to you and remove your church. Shut down your church from its place unless you repent. Now, isn't that an amazing thing? This church that was exploding life and vibrancy, grace and mercy of God poured out in unprecedented proportions. And then God comes along and says, because somewhere, subtly, along the way, major things have been you know, replaced by minor things. My agenda for your church has gotten replaced by your little agenda for your church. Because of that, I am going to come. If you don't repent and turn, if you don't, if you don't turn from this, I'm going to come and I'm going to shut down your church. God is warning them. I'm not going to to be okay with your church family, with the church in Ephesus, replacing my agenda for the church with your little agenda. I'm not going to be okay with your preferences taking the place of gospel priorities. I'm not going to be okay with that. Suddenly, church in Ephesus, you've had this little mission drift happen where you have lost sight of the main things. You've taken your eye off the ball that I have given you to be about. And because of that, if you don't turn, if you don't repent, if you don't stop that and get your life realigned and recalibrated in my mission for your church, I am going to come. And because I love you, because I care for you, I'm going to shut down your church. And you know the sad reality for the church in Ephesus? That's exactly what happened. Five years in, they never would have dreamed that that subtle mission shift would have happened. They never would have dreamed that for God to love their church, he would actually have to work against it. 
They, they never would have dreamed that God would have had to come to them and say, I am going to close your doors because you're not about the right things. They never would have dreamed that. And, and here is really my angst for this morning. I, I want us to heed and hear that warning from God. That, that when we get our church misaligned, when we start, like the main thing becomes the wrong thing. When, when that happens in a place, God says the same thing that he said to the church in Ephesus to any church who has that sort of mission drift. That if you don't repent, if you don't turn from making the wrong things the main things, because I love you, I'm going to have to work against you. And what me working against you will ultimately mean is I will shut down the doors of your church because you're about the wrong thing. So I want us to, to heed that and hear that, that we are equally prone to allowing our preferences to take the place of gospel priorities. We are equally prone to allowing our little personal you know, agendas to take the place of God's agenda for our church. We're equally prone to that. So I want us to heed God's warning here in Revelation 2, and I want us to have a morning where we recalibrate around what it is that God has called us to be about here, that we think about these things, that we, that we make sure that we're seeing clearly the ball that God has given us to move down the court, that the ball that God has given us to push, what it is that God has called us to be about, and here's how we articulate that. And I don't think this should be unique to our church. I think in some way every church should be articulating something really similar. So, so he, here it is. This, is. this is our language that we use to describe this. What has God called us to be about? We, we say it this way, extending the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we're about. If you ever ask the question, what are we about as a church family? Here is your answer. Extending the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we're about. Now, you're not going to like turn to a page in your Bible and see that little succinct statement. But I think if you read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, what you're going to find is that is the message of the Bible. This is what God is doing. God is, God is for his fame and for his renown and for his glory. God is redeeming and rescuing a people among all the nations. And he's doing that rescuing work through the good news of Jesus. Through, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He's rescuing through that. This, this is the story of the Bible. So, so this isn't a, a statement that we've kind of randomly created. This is a statement that we've humbly received from God for our church. This is what God says that we should be about as a church family. So I want to just break this down in three parts and run through this this morning. Just to reorient us around what is it that God has called us to? What does what God ask us to be about as a church? So, so in three parts, we would say it like this. Number one, extending the glory of God. This is where it starts. Extending the glory of God. So this is going to be Romans chapter 11. Now, if you want one book of the Bible that really has within it the entire Bible, Romans is your book. Romans 1 through 3 tell us about man's problem before God, namely our sin. And it also, Romans 1 through 3, tells us God's solution for man, namely the person and work of Jesus. Um, chapters 4 and 5 tell us about faith, what it means to walk by faith. Chapters 6 and 7, what it means to grow in Christ's likeness and what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Chapter 8 is just packed full of beautiful promises that God gives to us because of Jesus. And then you get to chapters 9 through 11, and Paul walks us into, he paints these beautiful pictures of God's sovereign work in our life, where he sovereignly comes in and saves, where he comes in this one-way grace that rescues us and transforms us and changes us. Then when you get to the end of chapter 11, 
So after he's kind of walked through all of that, you get to the end of chapter 11, and Paul literally, just in a moment of being overwhelmed at God's grace, he just breaks out into praise and poetry. Right above verse 33, you might have the, the, the word in your Bible, doxology. That Paul's theology of Romans 1 through 11 has led to doxology. It's a, doxology means a glory statement. It means a statement of worship. Paul's theology has led to this moment where he breaks out in worship, this glory statement. And this is what he says in verse 33. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I love what A.W. Tozer, he's an author, um, said. He said, The most important thought you will ever think is the one immediately following the word God. It's the most important thought you will ever think. It determines everything about your life. The thought immediately following. When I say the word God, like the thought that immediately followed that is the most important thought you will ever think. And what we're seeing here in verse 33 is when Paul thinks about the the word God, when he thinks about the good news of Jesus, he is literally full. His heart erupts with big, beautiful, massive thoughts. And he begins to commend these attributes of God. Look at verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? It's a rhetorical question. It's a a question that's so obvious that it's actually making a loud statement. Answer, no one has done that. Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. That's not the way the world works. No one gives a gift to God that he might be repaid. And then look at verse 36. This is kind of the summation of the first 11 chapters. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So all things, we're talking about everything that you see is from him, through him, and to him. So it's, so it's from him. He is the source of all things. It's through him. He's the sustainer of all things, and it's to him. He's the end of all things. You know, history is linear. We, we were created before God, right before God. We're put before God when we're created. And then it's going to end before God. Every human being in, in some way, shape, or form, when it's all said and done, when the, when the smoke clears and the dust settles, we're going to find ourselves before God again. And our only hope in that moment is Jesus. It's the only hope we have. And then you have these last six words. And these last six words are going to walk us in to the purposes of God. Like, what is God about? What is God doing? What's the mission of God, the objective of God, the aim of God? Here it is, these last six words. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is what God is about. Let's just say it this way. God is about the glory of God. And when we're saying God is about the glory of God, here's what we mean. That God is about setting his attributes, who he is, his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, his truth, his holiness, his justice. He is about setting these attributes on display so the world can marvel at them and wonder at them. That this is what God is about. This is why God does what God does. God is about the glory of God. So when, you, when you're asking the question, why did God do this? Why did God set the world up like this? There's a lot that we don't know about that. But here's what we do know. Over it all, this is the reason God does what God does. At the top of the list sort of a sense. Everything that God has done, everything that God is doing, everything that God will do. That the answer to all of that is the glory of God. That's the reason God does what he does. Now, I don't want you just to take my word for that. I want you to see this framed in the Bible. So I, I want to run through what I would just call some glory text. And I want you to see that from Genesis to Revelation, 
that God is about the glory of God, that we see this throughout the Bible. So let me just run through several verses here for you. This is Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, where we see that God is central to God. Look at what it says here. For my name's sake, in other words, for my glory, so that people will see who I am, what I am. For, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Here's Isaiah 43, 6 through 7. Why were you created? I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You were made for the glory of God, created for the glory of God. God called Israel for his glory, Isaiah 49, 3. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. He rescued Israel from Egypt, Psalms 106. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. And why did God save them? Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his power or his mighty power. Why did God raise up Pharaoh, Romans 9? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why did God destroy, not just defeat, but destroy Pharaoh? Exodus 14. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Verse 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God gave Israel victory in the promised land. Why did he do that? 2 Samuel 7, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving before your, uh, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its God. What, why did he do that? For his name, to, to make a name for him. Why did God restore Israel from exile? Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which uh, you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Why did God give provision to his people? Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. The mission of Jesus was about the glory of God. John 7. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So, so Jesus is about the glory of his father. God chooses, predestines, and adopts for his glory. This is Ephesians 1.6. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why did he do all of that? Verse 6. To the praise 
of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We do good works for God's glory. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so when they speak against you as evildoers, why do we keep our conduct honorable? That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Jesus endured his final hours for God's glory. John 12, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is what Jesus is about, glorifying the name of the Father. Everything we as a Christian are to do is for God's glory. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. God's plan has God's glory right at the center of it. Look at how it says it in Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of, of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. That's what God is up to, covering this planet with his glory as the waters cover the sea. And lastly, in heaven, the glory of God is going to be the central thing. Revelation 21, verse tw- uh, verses 21 through 23. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The, the The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. See, this is, this is the testimony of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation that God is about the glory of God. This is what God is doing. This is why God is doing what God is doing. He is covering the, this planet j- just like the waters cover this, the, you know, the, 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 the land. He's covering this world, this planet, this universe with his glory. That is God's agenda. And in light of that being God's agenda, the glory of God, this is Stonegate's agenda. We want the glory of God. We want God to be made famous. We want God to look wonderful. Stonegate is about the glory of God. So so let me just state this plainly. If somebody were to ask you, what are we about? What is at the center of everything that we're doing here? Here's the answer. The glory of God is. That is what we're about. Now, let's just press this down into our life. Is that the way you see our church family? That we are about the glory of God. See, if that's the way you see it, it means that your preferences aren't priority, that this gospel agenda of God's glory is primary. Do you see this place that way? Or how about this? Do you see your life that way? Is your life about the glory of God? See, for our church to be about the glory of God, here's what it means, that we as individuals in our church family have to be about the glory of God. So is this the way you see your life? See, and and we're talking about the glory of God being central. It confronts us with something we really don't like to think about, that we aren't central. See, it confronts us with this reality that, that one of the things to make God's glory central, one of the things that requires is for you and I to get over us. For us to get over us. It requires us to know that we're not the point. That, that our life is not about us. That this church is not about us. It is primarily about God and his glory. That your life is not about you. That it is about God and his glory. And listen, when we think we are the point, when we think that we're in the center of life and everyone, including God, is revolving around us, a million other sins flow from that. Disaster flows from that. Listen, if you think you're the point of your life, if you have not gotten over you, which is all of us, right? So if we haven't gotten over us, it robs our life of so much joy and it robs God of his glory. 
A few weeks ago, um, Laura and I, we were taking our family somewhere driving, and I was just in one of those moods, you know what I'm saying? Like, just not happy, not happy at all. And uh, Laura looked over at me, obviously something is wrong, and says, what's wrong? And I'm really not in the mood to talk about it, so rather than just lying and saying everything's good, I just didn't say anything. And because my wife, and in this moment I didn't like it, but generally I'm very appreciative of this, she kind of pursued me in that moment and wouldn't just let that go. Um, she asked me again, obviously something's wrong, so, so what is that? I'd love to chat about that. And finally, I, I just looked at her and said, um, here, here's, I think, what's wrong. I've got this little kingdom that is my life, and I've got hopes and plans for the advancement of this kingdom, and it's just not going the way I want it to go right now. That's what's wrong, and I'm pouting about it. That's, that's what's going on right now. And listen, is that not just like a microcosm of so many of our lives? That we've got our little kingdom. And, and when things don't go the way we want our little kingdom to go, life just disintegrates for us. And welcome to God's agenda, by the way, for our life. To disintegrate our little kingdom that we are grabbing to with everything in us so that we'll let go of our little kingdoms and grab onto his kingdom. Like welcome to, welcome to the problem of so many of our marriages, Right? Here's, here's a, a way to summarize what, what is the problem in all of our marriages. We've got a kingdom, and she's got a kingdom. And when, when, when her kingdom isn't serving my kingdom, I've got a problem with that. I don't like that. Things are not going well when that's going. W- welcome to the problem in, in our relationships. Welcome to the problem in us trying to, to live in biblical community, like in your home group. See, when you walk into your home group, here's what you're bringing into that home group, your little kingdom. And everyone else is bringing their little kingdom into it. And when their kingdom is not serving your kingdom and your kingdom start to clash, this is when nuclear bombs start, start blowing up, right? This is when all heck breaks loose relationally in marriages. And listen, in your marriage, in your friendships right now, here is the thing. Here is the thing that needs to happen. You've got to get over you. I've got to get over me. And listen, I'm not saying that your husband or wife has to get over their issue. I'm saying You've got to get over you. See, it's not until we get over ourselves that we actually get to the glory of God. It's not until we get over ourselves and realizing that our life is not about us. It is about Jesus. It's not until we get over ourselves that we can get to Jesus, though. It's not until we get over ourselves that we can show the world that, that God really is sufficient in this moment, that Jesus really is big enough to minister to us in this moment of our kingdoms disintegrating. Now, it's interesting, in, uh, in, in Mark chapter 8, I, you know, Jesus walks us into what I would just call the paradox of the Christian life. And, and this is really what Paul is inviting us into in Romans 11. When he is saying that God is about the glory of God, that we should be about the glory of God, he's really walking us down, he's pointing us down the path that leads to joy and life and, and more glory for God. He's pointing us down the life of where your joy is. Like, it's really interesting. This is how Jesus says it in Mark 8, just affirming what Paul is saying. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel finds it. Isn't that an interesting thing? He's saying that when you let go of your little kingdom, when you let go of you being the center of everything, when you let go of of everyone else serving your kingdom, so you can't love and enjoy other people because they're subjects that you need to serve your kingdom and advance your cause. When you let go of your little kingdom and, and, and you, you release your grip from that and you grab God's kingdom, when you, here's what it's going to feel like. When you let go of your kingdom, it's going to feel like you're dying. It's going to feel like death to you. 
When you let go of your kingdom, it's going to feel like the life is being squeezed out of you. But, but Jesus is saying this, when you let go of that kingdom, when you feel like you're dying, you're actually going to start living then. You're actually going to start walking in what I've created you to be. I've created you for my glory. I've created you, hardwired you to be about my glory. So when you let go of your little kingdom, it's going to feel like death, but I'm going to walk you into life. That's the paradox of the Christian life right there. That when you let go of you being the center and let God be the center, that is actually when you start living for the glory of God and your joy becomes complete. You start walking in the fullness of life that Jesus promises. So so let me ask you the question. Are you about the glory of God? Your life, your marriage, your friendships, your work, are you about the glory of God? Here's what we're saying. What is Stonegate about? We are about the glory of God because God is about the glory of God. We are about extending the glory of God. This is what we're about. Now the next question becomes, how do we go about extending the glory of God? How is that done? Answer, by making disciples. So flip, flip over to Matthew chapter 28. How do we go about extending the glory of God? How do we get about the work of, of glorifying God? By making disciples. Matthew says it this way in verse 28. And Jesus said, came and said to them, I'm sorry, verse 18. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So if we're trying to answer the question as a church family, how can we be about the work of glorifying God? There's a lot of things we could say, but I think this is the most important thing we could say. We get about that work of glorifying God by making disciples. This is how we do that, by making disciples. This is what God has given us to be about, making disciples. Now, disciple-making comes in two parts. And I just want to make sure we see this with just real clarity this morning. It comes in two parts. Part number one of disciple-making are people meeting Jesus. You can't make a disciple without people being converted to Jesus, without people having changed hearts, without dead hearts in people, spiritually dead hearts, becoming alive. This is where disciples are created. It's, when, it's this moment when God shines a sovereign light into their hearts, creating life in them and vibrancy in them. For the first time, they look at Jesus and think, Jesus looks great to me. And they run and put their faith in Jesus. This is the moment where a disciple is made. It starts with people meeting Jesus. And isn't it interesting, in light of God sovereignly doing that, that this idea of God sovereignly working in a person's heart to create life and vibrancy in them, spiritual life and vibrancy, that he also looks at us and says, but I want you to go and make disciples. That it's like God saying, I'm going to be about this, but here's what I'm doing. I'm inviting you as a church, you individually, in on this. I want you to be about this with me. I'm going to be saving, but I want you to be speaking. I'm going to be working, but I want you to be a witness. I want to involve you in the process of making disciples, people meeting Jesus. So I want you to befriend people who don't know Jesus. I want you to be praying for people who don't know Jesus. I want you to talk about Jesus with people who don't know Jesus. And I want you to depend on me and lean on me to do the saving work. God is inviting us into that. Now, this is one of the reasons that that we want everyone in our church family to have a top five. Everyone in our church family to have a group of people, five people that don't know Jesus, that they are pleading with God to save and rescue. 
So if you don't have that, man, I just want to plead with you. This is part of us making disciples, is you and I having people that we are pleading with God to save. That we have people, a top five, that we are begging for God to do some work in, to rescuing work. That we're begging God to do that. So so part one of disciple making is people meeting Jesus. Part two of disciple making is people maturing in Jesus. It's not, you know, Jesus does not just say make a convert. He says, I want you to go and make disciples. And then he says something about what we're to do with disciples. How it is that we're to, to work with disciples. He goes on in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations and then do this. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So disciples are, are baptized. They put their faith in Jesus and then they're baptized. And if you've never been baptized, man, we would love to celebrate that with you. Here in a few weeks, we're going to be baptizing again. And so if that would interest you, email us. We would love to celebrate that moment with you on a Sunday morning. So, so disciples are baptized. But then he goes on in verse 20 and says this. Disciples aren't just baptized. Here's the next thing. Teaching the, these people who have just met Jesus, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. A disciple isn't just a person who has met Jesus. A disciple is a person who is maturing in Jesus, learning what it looks like to follow Jesus, to live for Jesus, to walk in the way and the will of Jesus. A disciple is doing that, both, both meeting Jesus' conversions and maturing in Jesus. They're growing in their life with God. It's a, okay, now here's what I want to say. It's a both and. Disciple making is not an either or. Man, in church world, I feel like we get this dichotomy that says either we're going to be a church that like does the meeting Jesus thing or we're going to be a church that really matures people in Jesus. And God does not give us that option. He says, as a church family, here's how you glorify me. I am glorified by making more disciples. That's people meeting Jesus. And making better disciples. That's people growing in Jesus. So, so let me just say it this way. As a church family, we really do care about your life. We really do care about the way that you live. We really do care about how your marriage is working. We really do care about how you relate to finances and money. We care about those things because we want everyone in our church family to be growing in what it looks like to walk faithfully with Jesus. We want us all to be growing in that. So now now let me just take a step back here and just apply it to our life. And I want you to just be freshly amazed for a second that Psalms 139 would say that God looks at you and he uniquely makes you, that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. So there is a uniqueness and a distinctiveness about you. So, so you have certain things that you're drawn to. Some people that's sports, some people that's the arts, some people that's the intellectual things. You have certain things that you're drawn to, certain people that you're drawn to, certain places that you're drawn to. So God has distinctly and uniquely made you. And then Acts 17, Paul says that not only has God distinctly made you, but he has determined the specific time that you would be here on earth, the specific season of your life, and the particular place that you would live that season. So just tie all of that together. God's uniquely made you, and then God in his sovereign plan has said, and I want you to be alive right now in this season, 2014. And I want you to be in this particular place the Midlothian area. Now, what, what is God up to? Let me just tie all that together. Here's what God is up to in the wisdom of God. He's uniquely made you. He's placed you in this time, in this place, so that you would be about the work that he's prepared for you. Ephesians chapter 2.10, namely making disciples. So I wanna plead with you, get about that work with us. 
Man, if you're new here, if you're, if you're, this is like your first time to come to Stonegate. This is what we're about. Here's what I'm, I'm telling you today, if, that, if that's you. We could really use your help in doing that. We would love to have you here helping us make more and better disciples. People meeting Jesus and people maturing in Jesus. We want both of that. So get about that work of maturing in Jesus. If that's you this morning, some of us need to hear this. Man, a priority, the priority in our life should be growing in our walk with Jesus. Learning more and more of what it means to walk with God. You know, repent quickly in our life. Turn from sin. Continually turning to Jesus. We need to, to prioritize that. You don't just like drift into that. You don't just like wake up and think, oh man, I'm just doing better today. I mean, there's a reason that, that sanctification is grueling, that growing with God is hard. The Bible says you have to strive for this. So, man, we just want to invite you in to striving with that with us, of maturing in Jesus. Our pathway for disciple-making is our home groups. So if you're not in a home groups, you are forsaking one of God's primary means of grace to help you grow in maturity to Jesus. So get in a home group with us. Man, do life with us in that way. We, we need more home group leaders so if God is putting in you, kind of stirring in you, desire to lead a home group, let us know. Travis does such a great job investing and, and pouring time and energy into home group leaders. And we have got great home group leaders across our church. Great home group leaders. And so Travis would love to begin to walk with you maybe down that road and see what the Lord might have. But I mean, get in on this thing of maturing in Jesus with us. And, and let me just remind you of this. In your life, you have got nothing better to do than make disciples. There's a lot that we've got to do, but we've got nothing better to do in our workplaces, in our neighborhood, among our friends. We've got nothing better to do than make disciples. This is how we give God glory. This is what God has called us toward. And now for the last phrase. So we're about extending the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the means. How, how are we going to go about making disciples? There's only one way. There's only one way. Here is the way disciples are made, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that's the only way. Paul shows us this in Romans 1.16. It's going to be on the screen for you. In Romans 1.16, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, for it is the power of God. For what? For salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he's saying the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's the good news that God has sent his son, Jesus, in the midst of our rebellion. In, in the midst of our sin, God has sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life in place of our imperfect life. To die on the cross for our sin, risen from the dead on the third day, so that all those who put their faith in Jesus can be justified. He, in other words, it wipes the whole record of our sin clean. We're pardoned. But it's not just that side. Justification is also, it's not just as if we had never sinned. It's also just as if we had always obeyed. We're not only pardoned in Jesus, we're also perfected. The perfect record of Jesus is written now over our life. We're justified. All those who put their faith in Jesus, justified. We're redeemed in Jesus. We've been brought out of the tyranny and oppression of sin and evil and Satan and redeemed into Jesus. So, so we're, we're not only justified, we're redeemed. We're adopted. Not only does God justify us, pardon, and, and perfect us, he brings us into his family. In Jesus, God, God makes us sons and daughters. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We're now we're empowered to live a life of faithful obedience as sent ones of God. 
This is the good news of Jesus. And Paul is correcting what I would just call a major misconception that people have. He's correcting this misconception that, that people have that, that the good news of Jesus is only for people who don't yet know Jesus. He's correcting the misconception that many people have that the good news of Jesus is only for the first step into the Christian life. It is only the way that we, that we meet God. And listen, the great news, is it is that. If you're here this morning and you are investigating Jesus, here is the great news of the gospel. That in Jesus, you can meet God this morning, be reconciled to God this morning, and be saved, rescued from your sin. And then we want to plead with you. If you haven't done that, this morning is your morning to turn from sin, put your faith in Jesus. The good news of the gospel does that. But it doesn't only do that. This word salvation in Romans 1 is an all-encompassing word to describe the A to Z of the Christian life. Not only our conversion where we meet Jesus, but it also describes the whole process of us maturing in Jesus. And it describes this moment where we're going to be glorified in heaven forever with God. It describes all of that. And Paul is saying the good news of Jesus relates to it all. The good news of Jesus is not just how you enter the kingdom. It's how you make all progress to the kingdom. It's not just your first step with Jesus. The good news of Jesus is how you make every step with God. It's, it's all of that. And so the way that we make disciples is by continually holding the good news of Jesus out in front of you and me. That's how we do it. The good news of Jesus is the only way for us to not only meet Jesus, but to grow in conformity to Jesus. This is how it's done. So this is why we would say that the most important thing you can know, the most important thing in the world for you to know is the good news of Jesus. And the most important thing for you to do daily is to daily remember the good news of Jesus. It's as the good news of Jesus drops deeper in our heart, not just a mental awareness, but like the good news drops in us. Like we become more and more convinced that I love how Valentine said it last week, that because Jesus was beaten, we could become the beloved. Because he was abandoned, we could become adopted sons and daughters of God. Because he was forsaken, we could be forgiven. It's when the good news of that drops in us that our hearts begin to explode with life and love and a want for God. It's what creates in us the capacity to live out the commands of God. See, you... To live the Christian life, you have to know more than what to do. You have to actually have the capacity created in you to go about doing what you know to do. And the good news of Jesus is the only thing that creates that capacity. Now, I want to end with this. I want to end by encouraging you, as we know and, and just recognize that what we are praying for God to do here, extending the glory of God by making disciples to the good news of Jesus, it's actually happening that's the most, this is why I stand up every week and I'm like, this is a miracle that this is, God is actually doing these things around here. So, so this week I asked um, some people to, to answer this question, kind of fill in the blank. God has used this church family to dot, dot, dot. You, you finished that. Now I just want to give you a, a, just a small sampling of some of what God is doing around here. How it is that God is actually accomplishing this thing of prior, us prioritizing the glory of God, disciples being made through the good news of Jesus. How it is that God's actually doing that. So let me run through these and we'll be done. One guy said it like this. God has used this church family to increase my love for Jesus, equip me to pastor my family, and to give me a vision and dream for making much of Christ with my life. 
One lady named Sarah said this, to teach me how to love and be loved, why I need to fight sin and how I fight sin, that I can be 100% known and loved, and that Jesus and his people are far better than I could ever imagine. But one person, Blake, he said it this way, to paint a picture of what it means to live in and breathe the gospel, and most importantly, to convince me that I'm desperately needy for the good news of grace over and over and over and over again. I love how one guy said this, how has God used Stonegate? To bring my spiritually dead heart to life, to save me. One lady said this, to show me my constant need of a savior and to take me from a place of miserable self-righteousness toward a place of awe in his vast goodness and perfect love for me. The last four years have been the hardest of my life circumstantially, but they're the most precious to me as I see how the Lord has used this body to encourage and challenge me in a season where all hope could have easily been lost. One lady, Amanda, said this, to redeem our broken marriage. One guy said this, to, I love this, to blow up our hearts for Jesus. One guy said this, to help me take real steps of obedience in the area of pornography and lust. One lady said this, to provide a family to help bear my burdens. One guy said this, uh, Michael, grow me, to grow me and my family in the knowledge of God and his great love for us through his son, Jesus. One guy said this, to show me my idols, my continual need for repentance, and the never running out nature of God's grace. It has been freeing and life-changing. One guy, Kevin, said it this way, to give us community to help us grow in transparency, allowing people to see our weakness and to show us the good news of Jesus applies to all situations in life. And best of all, our oldest son was saved at Stonegate. Jennifer said this, to give us community, friends who really care about our souls. But one lady said this, to help us financially in ways that no other church I've ever been around has done. But more important, to help us spiritually. Our family has grown tremendously in the last eight months. Being known by people has freed me from things I didn't even know I was in bondage to. One guy named Brian said this, to give me a group of men who cared enough to pursue me in my sin and hold me accountable. The desires of my heart have changed from living for myself to living for Jesus. One guy named Mark said it this way, to show me the good news of the gospel that I'm accepted by God because of Jesus and I don't have to live for the approval of others. One guy said it this way, to save our marriage. After having multiple affairs, essentially wrecking my marriage and exposing my infidelity to my children, God used our church family to come around my wife, who's been the best example of Jesus I've ever seen, to rebuke me and discipline me counsel and support my children. My church family continues to nurture and support us as I'm learning what it means to be a husband to my wife and a better father to my children. Without Stonegate, I feel sure we would be a broken family today. Instead, through this church family, the potter's taken those broken pieces and begun to form a new vessel. One guy, Chris, said it this way, to encourage us, love us, and to point us to the gospel and to help us grow in Christ. Ryan said it this way, to mature our family in Christ, to really change the trajectory of our lives and to explode our understanding of the gospel into a thousand points of glimmering light, all reflecting the glory and beauty of his son. One lady said this, to ground us with the life-transforming truth of our identity in Christ and what that looks like in everyday life. One lady said, to remind me of God's faithfulness when it felt like my world was falling apart. 
Brandon said it this way, to make me a better husband and father. One lady said this, to save me. One guy said to provide real help. Several months ago, I lost my job. Without the help and support of my home group, we would have lost everything. And one couple said it this way, one lady, to grow us and to give us a family. I really believe that if God had not have sovereignly placed us at Stonegate, my husband and I would be divorced today. It's the best thing that's ever happened to us. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to allow God to press any of the things that would be most helpful. And and I'm just praying that we would heed the warning, both corporately as a church family and us personally. We would heed the warning and recalibrate our life around what it is that God has called us to. So by his grace, right now in this room, that we would be getting over ourselves. God, help us in that we would realize we are not the point, that you're the point. And I just can't help but imagine that there's many of us right now in this room who need real repentance right now in your life as you consider how you have made your marriage, your life, your way of thinking, your way of dealing, your way of seeing the world all about you. And God is inviting you. Don't do that. Turn from that. That, that is sin. That's idolatry. Turn from that. It's going to wreck you. It's going to rob me of glory. Instead, turn to me. Make your life about me. Let go of your little kingdom and grab on to mine. It's going to feel like death, but it's going to be life for you. I can't help but believe that there's some in the room right now who, who this is your morning to turn and for the first time in your life to turn from your sin and to believe in Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus, to trust Jesus with, with all of your life and all of your sin and to treasure him above all things. The great news of the gospel is that when you do that, God says, I'll save you. I'll rescue you right now. I'll, I'll do that. And there's some right now in this room that need that to happen. There's many of us who, who we need to recalibrate our life around the issue of disciple making. Us maturing as a disciple, growing as a disciple, and us making disciples in our life. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.